Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. The Kingdom, the Rebellion, and the Great White Throne. Let's talk about all these things coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles with Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. Today, we are completing the second part of our study on the Millennial Kingdom. Now, actually, the last two sessions and this session really should all be viewed together. Armageddon, and then last session, talking about the different viewpoints of the Millennial Kingdom, and then today, this session. So if you're jumping right into this now, you need to backtrack a little bit and especially look at last week's, because last week we showed definitive proof on why we believe the Millennial Kingdom is a literal event that will happen on earth when Jesus returns. Now, why is this connected to Armageddon? Well, remember the prophecies of Jesus all through the Old Testament and what he himself said. He came first as a savior, but he was going to come back again as a conquering king. And that's what we saw with Armageddon. He conquered the armies of darkness. And now we're going to be looking at what his millennial kingdom will be like. Now, Revelation 20 actually is divided into three sections. And the first section is talking about the reign of Jesus Christ as King of Kings. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit, and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he would be released again for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus, for proclaiming the word of God. And I saw the souls of those who had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Now, the first thing to note is that Satan was bound for a thousand years. Now, a lot of people who still insist that this is just a metaphor use this to describe how the last 2,000 years of the church age are really what the millennial kingdom is, that is a spiritual kingdom. Now, we've gone over all the evidence. I'm not going to go over it again. You need to look at last session. We went in detail all the biblical evidence, but yet people still hold to that false teaching. 
And they say this because, you know, Satan has been bound by the gospel of Christ since the you know, beginning of the church. But that's just not true, is it? Satan is alive and well, and he is doing everything he can to destroy the church. And we're seeing that in world events even today. So don't make a mistake to think that Satan is bound. He is not bound yet. But when Jesus, after the battle of Armageddon, seizes the throne and takes his place as the king of kings, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And I see no reason to take this number as anything but literal. It will be a thousand years. Uh, all the other numbers in the book of Revelation seem to be quite accurate and very specific. So I think this one uh, is literal too. Now notice it talks about reigned with Christ. Let's talk about those who reign with Christ. In verse 4, it implies that this is just the martyrs that refused to submit to the, the reign of terror of the Antichrist and did not take his mark. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus, for proclaiming the word of God. And I saw the souls of those who had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life again and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it kind of implies it's just those saints that endured through the seven-year uh, time of God's judgment and under the reign of the Antichrist and his uh, persecution of all believers. They didn't take the mark. But don't be led astray by that. As we'll see later, that's not the whole picture. Tradition teaches and has for 2,000 years that it will be all the believers. And there's some uh, scripture that supports this. Christ taught that the apostles would be on 12 thrones with him when he reigned. Luke 22, verses 28 and 30 talk about that. And also in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8, Paul taught that all believers would be on thrones reigning with Christ. And we touched on these passages last session when we were showing the biblical proof that the millennial king, the millennial kingdom, excuse me, is a literal event. Now let's talk about this first resurrection. Let's look at it again in verse 5 and 6. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So this is a first resurrection. One of two, as we'll see later on in the chapter. Now, Jesus also talked about the two resurrections. And just a quick review of what we discussed last week. Remember, in Luke 14, verses 12 through 15, Jesus is the guest of honor at a supper. And he has a casual conversation with the host. And he mentions the resurrection of the godly. Well, that obviously implies, I mean, logically, you have to conclude if he's talking about the resurrection of the godly, then there's going to be a resurrection of the unbelievers, the unrighteous people. And of course, that makes two re resurrections. So Jesus was, you know, confirming that in this casual conversation. Now, the resurrection of the godly 
uh, gets a lot of people confused because it seems to have three phases according to the book of Revelation. And uh, let's go over these phases first, and then I want to talk about how that shouldn't be too alarming. The first phase is the rapture, the sixth seal. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, we've talked about how that is the rapture. It coincides with everything that happened in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel and Acts, and, it's, and the imagery of Matthew 24. It's the same imagery. This is the rapture, the sixth seal. And all the believers uh, who were alive or dead up to that point in history are taken up to heaven. That's the first phase. But then later on in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we see the worship celebration of the 144,000. The 144,000 Jewish missionaries that were marked out to spread the gospel during the seven-year period of Jacob's distress, the seven-year period of God's judgment. Well, they evidently got martyred during their uh, time period, and they are having their worship service up there in heaven. So obviously, that's some type of second resurrection. And then, of course, this third group that's talked about here in Revelation 20. This looks like this is the Jewish remnant and any other uh, Gentile believers that were martyred during the reign of the Antichrist, and are, they're seen to be resurrected here in Revelation 20. Now, these are people that heard the gospel of the 144,000 uh, witnesses, the 144,000 missionaries, and they got saved. And this is predominantly going to be the Jewish remnant, but I'm sure there's going to be, uh, you know, some Gentiles all mixed in the uh, pool there too, because they too uh, hopefully will hear the gospel and get saved also. Now, a lot of people get upset when they look at this three phases of the resurrection of the godly, and they say, this is why uh, the rapture doesn't occur until here, right before Jesus reigns. But again, we've gone through all those proofs of why we believe it happens before the uh, seven-year period of Jacob's distress. But there's another thing I want to point out here. In chapter 20, verse 6, let me read it. It uses an interesting word. In the NLT, it says this, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Now, if you look at the Greek word, miros, it really means a portion. Now, I think it probably is just saying those who take part or have a part in the resurrection of the godly. Happy are they. But it's interesting. It could be, and this is weak evidence, I admit, but it could be that since it's talking about this word, a portion, it's implying that there are parts to the resurrection of the godly. And as we've seen in the book of Revelation, it seems to be three parts to it. The rapture, the 144,000, and then those who uh, believe on their message and are resurrected, as we're seeing here in Revelation 20. Now, this three-part resurrection, like I say, it gets a lot of people upset and confuses people. But don't forget Remember, this is actually following the exact procedures of the Feast of Rosh Hashanah. Remember how we studied that. Three books of accounts are opened on Rosh Hashanah. The Feast of Trumpets is what some people call it, but it's Rosh Hashanah. And in these books are recorded the lives of the wicked, 
Then there's also another book that records the lives of the righteous, and this is called the Book of Life. And then there's a third group who are kind of in the middle. And you remember we studied this uh, several sessions ago, and we learned that this middle group has a chance. Their hearts are still soft enough that they have a chance to believe in God. Whereas the, the book of the unrighteous, they've hardened their hearts to the point that they won't believe in God. And it's all recorded. Now, the 10 days before Rosh Hashanah, remember they're blowing trumpets every day, to once a day, to warn you that Rosh Hashanah is coming and that you better prepare your hearts because that's when the lives of the righteous are sealed, the names of the righteous are sealed in the book of life. And that corresponds to what we've learned about the seven seals. The seven seals are used by God to warn people that the destruction, the judgment of God is on its way and is giving people this chance to get right before the rapture. Now, Rosh Hashanah is a huge celebration. They blow the trumpets on Rosh Hashanah hundreds of times, and this represents the sixth seal, the rapture, when that last trumpet's blown and we are all gathered together because the books have been sealed, the, the book of the righteous, the, the uh, book of life has been sealed, and we are taking up into heaven. Then the third group, those that aren't totally evil and still have a chance to believe in God, they go through a time period from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And they're given that time period in these feasts to repent and get right with God. So this is symbolic of what's going on in this seven-year period of Jacob's distress. Remember, Rosh Hashanah is celebrate, starts the celebration on the first day of the month, and it lasts for two days. And Yom Kippur, Poor is on the 10th day of the month, the last day. So the first two days is Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur is the last day, and that leaves seven days, which I think is symbolic of the seven-year period of Jacob's distress. So the th we see these three groups being you know, separated with the feasts of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And this third group, the ones that had a soft heart, but for whatever reason, they did not believe in Jesus before the rapture. These are the ones that get saved during the seven-year period. And if they choose to repent and they get saved, and the Jewish remnant is a large percentage of this group, they get saved, and then they are resurrection, resurrected, I should say, uh, and this is the third phase of the resurrection of the godly that we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 20. Now note, we're not seeing any type of formal judgment of the believers before they reign with Christ. We see no books being opened to see if they're saved. And this is because Jesus made it clear in John 3, verse 18, that believers do not face judgment whether or not they are saved once they get to heaven. Listen to what John uh, writes and how Jesus spoke in John 3, verse 18. There is no judgment awaiting those who trust him. 
Jesus made it clear, brothers and sisters, if you believe in him now and you are a Christian, there is no point in time that you stand before God and are determined by them opening up these books that are symbolized with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There is no point in time they open up the book of life and say, yes, you're saved. You don't face that judgment. Jesus made it clear. And this is important to know because there are too many Christians that I know, especially when they start facing death, they start saying over and over again, I hope I make it. I hope I'm good enough. I hope I make it. Now, my grandmother was a very godly woman, and she was a true believer. And even she, she was well over 100, about 103, 104, and she started worrying, I hope I'm good enough. I hope I make it. And it broke my heart. Listen, you have to remember that we are saved by faith, not works. And Jesus clearly says that if you believe, you will not face judgment. You will just face the open arms of your Savior welcoming you into heaven. 1 John 5 verse 13 says the same thing. He writes it this way. He says, I write this to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So the whole reason John wrote that letter, the first epistle of John, is so that those who are believers could rejoice and know that they have eternal life. Now, believers do stand before Christ at what is known as the Bema Seat. Or some people say it, the judgment seat of Christ. But it really is talking about a Greek concept called the Bema seat. Now, what's the Bema? The Bema was a platform where a king would sit and, and give a hearing to his servants and then reward them for their actions. In Romans 14, verse 10, the Greek is clear. It says, Bemata ho Christos, the Bema seat of Christ. And the King James Version translates it accurately here. Some of the modern translations don't. They say the judgment of God. We must stand before the judgment of God. And that's not true. It is talking about the Bematos ho Christos. And it is talking about the Bema seat of Christ. And this is where Christ is the conquering king, will sit on a raised platform on his throne, um, but not real high, but just a raised platform of his throne, and, and each of us will be brought before him. And he will listen and talk to the servant about what that servant has done on earth in his physical body for the cause of Christ. It's like a conquering king who rewards all the warriors who helped him have victory and claim his throne. And we see this in the parable of the ten servants that we looked at last session. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Some of the servants made a profit, and they were given uh, ten cities, and one was given five cities, and they're all given a reward based on what they did for Christ. Now listen to this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 through 10. Paul echoes this teaching that Jesus taught in that parable. 
Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that's the Bamata o Christos, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So some point in time, we will face Christ. And I think it's going to be before he actually ascends to the throne of his kingdom. So there's probably going to be a little bit of ceremony and the wedding feast and a few other things um, as we welcome in that third phase of the, the godly people and their resurrection. So there'll be a gap, I think, between the Armageddon and him ascending the throne where these ceremonies take place. Uh, and this is, is this is echoed throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15 says, What happens is that the works you've done in the body are tested by fire. And Paul says that if the works survive, then you'll get a reward. And if all your works burn up, he says, you'll suffer great loss, but the person is still saved. He says that clearly. So even if all your works that you've done here on earth for Jesus burn up because you had wrong motives or maybe you just uh, sat on your tail and didn't do anything for Jesus, well, all that will burn up, but you will still be saved because it's saved by faith, not works. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, we learn that there's a crown of righteousness. And so what happens, we learn that these uh, works, once they're tested, you'll get a reward. And this reward is traditionally thought to be a crown. Second Timothy 4, verse 8, like I said, Paul talks about the crown of righteousness. In James chapter 1, verse 12, James talks about the crown, of, the, excuse me, the crown of life. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, in his letter to the church of Smyrna, Jesus tells John what to write, and Jesus tells this church that if they endure the persecution, they too will receive the crown of life. Now, what do we do with these crowns? Well, they signify that we will reign with Jesus, and again, our responsibilities in the kingdom will be based on what we did on earth. So those who have more rewards and did more uh, for Christ and, and hit their works were tested through the fire and they were genuine, then they'll have more responsibility in the kingdom. But note in Revelation 4 verse 10, this is very important. It says that the 24 elders cast their crowns to the feet of the Lord. And at some point, I don't know exactly when, probably during all this ceremony before he actually ascends to the throne, because there'll be a lot of pomp and circumstance, everything in heaven's got these wonderful ceremonies, and we will cast our, throne, our, our crowns at the feet of the Lord as he ascends to his throne. Now, that's going to be a special moment, isn't it? When we take the rewards that he's given us and we say, Jesus, we couldn't have done it without you, and we throw our crowns at his feet. And then the thousand-year reign starts. And I don't know exactly what we'll be doing. Each believer will have different responsibilities. But just remember, the goal and the emphasis of this chapter is that Jesus is the conquering king. And he will reign for a thousand years. And we will reign with him. Now, the second part of Revelation chapter 20 talks about Satan's last rebellion. Let's look at that in Revelation 20 
starting in verse 7. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations from every corner of the earth, which are called Gog and Magog. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty host as numberless as sand along the shore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who betrayed them was thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this passage upsets a lot of people because they say, you know, here Satan is inciting a rebellion and also has to be un, you know, believers and they are rebelling against Christ. And how can there be unbelievers when Christ is reigning on the throne? Well, now understand something. This isn't heaven. This is a transition from the earth being ruled by worldly powers and at that point in time, the Antichrist, to now it's being reign, you know, ruled by Jesus and he's reigning as king of kings. And so, but it's still on earth. And yes, many of us will have, all the believers will have their glorified bodies and we will be reigning with Jesus. But obviously, not everybody got wiped out at Armageddon because that was the armies and all those people that uh, fought with the Antichrist and the ten kings to fight and rebel against Jesus. But I don't think everyone on the earth showed up at that valley to fight the Battle of Armageddon. It was a large percentage of them, the armies and the ten kings and all that. But the, a lot of the people are still on earth. They're unbelievers. And people say, well, how come they don't believe? Jesus is obviously there, and so everybody will believe. Well, let's think about that. A thousand years, people having kids, and just like now, people are going to doubt what is obvious in front of them. You know, just because Jesus is reigning on earth doesn't mean people are automatically going to believe that he's the Son of God. Many will, but many won't. I mean, think about it. We have really good archaeological proof where uh, Noah's Ark rests on Mount Ararat, and many people don't believe. That didn't get anybody to believe. We have really good evidence and, and scientific study of the Shroud of Turin, and yet nobody has really believed in Jesus from that. That hasn't changed everybody's hearts. And even during the time of the seven-year period, as we've learned in the book of Revelation, the seven-year period of God's judgments. People don't turn to Jesus. They don't turn to God. They know he's real. It even says at one point, we studied it, how they curse God because they thought the judgments were so severe. So they know God's real, but they refuse to submit and worship him. So just because Jesus is reigning on the throne, there's still going to be people who refuse to believe him. Many of the descendants of these unbelievers will not believe in Jesus. And think about it. They'll have excuses. They'll probably say, well, it can't really just be the same person reigning for a thousand years. It's probably uh, one of his descendants. He's just a man like us, or it's probably a clone or something like that. They'll come up with all kinds of excuses, but Evidently, according to what we're reading here in Revelation 20, Satan is able to round up enough unbelievers to attack Jesus and his kingdom there in Jerusalem. 
Now, this is using the terms Gog and Magog, and this comes back to a prophecy in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And this is possibly, and I say that weekly, possibly the fulfillment of the prophecy there in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But based on the context of those chapters in Ezekiel and what's going on here in Revelation, I think this is just another dual fulfillment of a prophecy. Look at what it says in Revelation 20, uh, verse 8. He will go out to deceive the nations from every corner of the earth, which are called Gog and Magog. Well, if you read Ezekiel 38-39, Gog and Magog referred to a leader in one uh, country, one group of people that we think is Russia. And then it lists some other countries that united with Russia that we think are things like modern-day Iran, a few other countries. And it's talking about a Russian-Arab alliance that attacks Jerusalem. So I think this we're looking at a dual fulfillment of prophecy. The one in Ezekiel 38-39 will occur probably, well, I don't know for sure, no one does, and we didn't go into it because it really doesn't bear weight on our study of Revelation. But somewhere along the line, that prophecy will be fulfilled, and it appears from Ezekiel's writings that that's what leads to the building of the third and final temple. The same temple that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 when he said the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, he would stop the worship of God in that temple. And that would fulfill another prophecy in the book of Daniel, which was another dual prophecy. So we see this throughout the Old Testament in, in Ezekiel, Daniel, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Just for instance, the day of the Lord uh, originally was talking about a prophecy when Babylon would invade and destroy the temple, the first temple. But it was also a dual prophecy and used as an illustration of what would happen one day with the Antichrist and how Christ would come and judge and win and be a victorious king and set up his kingdom. So we see these dual prophecies throughout scripture, and that's what I think this is. There will probably will be a time, who knows, we may live to see it, when there will be a Russian-Arab alliance and they attack Jerusalem. They'll get wiped out, just like Ezekiel says, and this will lead to somehow or another them being able to build the third temple. And then the Antichrist will come on the scene and somehow make a treaty with Israel, and he will uh, do just like we've studied in Matthew 24 and in the previous chapters of the book of Revelation. He will declare himself to be God and be worshipped. But what we're seeing here now is after Armageddon, Jesus has taken the throne, Satan's been defeated, and he has been let out for a short period of time to have another rebellion, his final rebellion. And this, this second fulfillment of the God-Magog thing is that fulfillment. He goes and gets all the nations, all the unbelievers throughout every corner of the world, not just the few that Ezekiel mentioned. So they're using the names Gog and Magog here in a metaphor-type sense, I think. This is the second fulfillment, and it's Satan's final rebellion against God. Now note how it ends. Satan is caught. The rebellion is just, you know, stopped, nipped in the bud, as Barney Fife would say. Satan is cast into hell, just like the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet were. 
We saw that in Revelation 19, verse 20. The, the Antichrist and the false prophet, the leader of this worldwide religion that says you should worship the beast, they were cast into hell alive. We studied that. Well, now Satan is cast into hell and joins them. Now, note this. This is important. Because a lot of people still think mistakenly that Satan rules hell. Satan does not rule hell. According to Jesus, our Lord, in Matthew 25, verse 41, he says hell was created. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. That has always been his eternal destination. He will be cast into hell along with all his angels, the demons, and they will be punished for eternity just like the unbelievers, just like the Antichrist and the false prophet. Now let's go on to the third part of this chapter. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, talks about the great white throne judgment. The great white throne, the judgment of God. Let's read about this in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and I saw the one who was sitting on it, and the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to the things written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it, and the death and the grave gave up the dead in them. They were all judged according to their deeds, and death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is the second resurrection, that of all the unbelievers, all the dead who have not been raised yet, all the dead, the unbelievers, and even those that died in the second rebellion of Satan, the final rebellion of Satan, they are all raised up and they face God on the white throne. He sits on a great white throne. His glory and light is shining forth, this dazzling white light, and they are faced with the final judgment. And it says they open up the books of life and judgment. And these are the books that we talked about that refers to in the Feast of the Rosh Hashanah. And it looks like they also open up some type of record, some type of books of all their evil deeds. And I think listening to these actions will also be opportunities that they had to believe in Jesus. So they will be faced with all their evil deeds. They will know that they deserve hell and they are cast into hell. Now, hell is a lake of fire and smoke, and it lasts forever. And this is the second death. It is eternal. You may, if the Lord tarries, most of us will die a physical death. That's the first death. But this is the spiritual death. This is your spirit and soul being cast into hell forever for those who don't believe in Jesus. And so look at the choice. This brings us right back to the choice that we've talked about from the beginning when we first started talking and studying the book of Revelation. The choice that everyone has, either believe in Jesus or reject him. 
choose life or choose death, eternal life or the eternal death, the second death that Revelation is talking about here. So choose either the dream or the nightmare. That is your choice. Everyone is faced with that choice. And just like Moses said in Deuteronomy, I hope, I pray, I beg that you will choose life and not death. And this is the same choice that leads to the spiritual war that's been going on throughout the ages. The war between the unrighteous who hate the righteous. And Satan is aware of that. That's why he's exploiting this war. That's his doing because he knows his eternal destination and he knows that he is doomed for hell. And that's why he's been fighting so violently. And that's why he's constantly trying to get people on his side to rebel against God, to refuse to believe and follow him. But he's using them. He's using them for something that will not work. And he is destined to be thrown to hell along with every unbeliever. Now, I know unbelievers that say, I want to go to hell because it is where all the fun people will be. I want to tell you something. It's not like that is eternal suffering, no hope of salvation in God, and you're in a lake of fire and suffering and darkness forever. It's not something you'd want. I pray that you'll choose life. I pray that you won't choose death. And for brothers and sisters out there, you need to reflect on this passage. I think it's a reason that God in this chapter inspired John to start with the good news, how we will reign with Christ and all believers will be able to cast their crowns at his feet and rejoice and reign with him for a thousand years. But after that is the bad news. People, our loved ones maybe, our friends who do not know Christ, who rejected Christ, will be cast into hell. And I think the Holy Spirit wrote this chapter like that to remind us as believers that we need to spread the gospel. We need to tell our family and friends what their eternal destination is unless they believe in Christ. So I hope you will reflect on these truths. Rejoice that you have eternity facing you in heaven and that you will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And after that, heaven. But also, remember, there's those who need to hear the gospel. And make sure you're a profitable servant taking the gospel to them. Don't wind up in heaven with no crowns because you didn't have the courage to tell, you, tell your friends about Jesus. Spread the truth. Spread the gospel. And until next time, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link.
Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.